This is episode 9 of Cinescope, and you mustn't be afraid to dream a little bigger, darling. Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and joining me today is Benson Ferris to talk about one of our favorite films, Inception. Benson, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. Um, I follow you on Twitter. You follow me on Twitter. We've been talking back and forth a little bit for a year or two now, probably, and uh, you mentioned just a week or two ago that you, you were watching Inception and you mentioned how much you liked that movie. And I said, hey, how about you come on my podcast where we talk about movies we like? <laughs> and I said, there's very few things I like talking about more than Inception. Exactly. And so how about you tell us a little bit about yourself before we get started? Sure thing. Sure thing. So I work in film production here in Arizona in the Phoenix Valley. Uh, at this point, I've worked on over 30 productions as assistant director, sound mixer, and more. Many people know me as a film music commentator. I report daily about uh, and discuss soundtracks online and through other media, through Twitter mainly, where my handle is at GoSoundtracks. Um, and I'm working to expand to Facebook, to Instagram, a website, and more. There's some exciting things that I'm planning there. Really, I just love movies and their soundtracks. And I want to be able to share that with others who are fans of those as well. Definitely. And you and I are both on the same page as far as films and soundtracks and all that stuff goes. So I say, how about we just go ahead and get started? But before we do, just remember that even just clicking the five-star button on iTunes for the podcast is just a-okay. Even if you don't feel like typing out a review, clicking the five-star button is a huge help and Anything you can do beyond that is just super appreciated. And once again, the iTunes link will be on the show notes if you want to just check that wherever your podcatcher app lists that. And then if you can go to the website, thecinescopepodcast.com, there will also be listed there. And you can click on that link and you can go to iTunes and you can leave a review or you can just leave a rating. And either way, it would be awesome and help the podcast out a huge amount. So that being said, let's talk about Inception. Are you ready? Of course. Okay. So this movie was released on July 16th of 2010 and was directed by Christopher Nolan, who, of course, directed Memento, Insomnia, The Prestige, Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, The Dark Knight Returns, Interstellar, and has an upcoming film called Dunkirk. It was written by Nolan, and the music was by what I'm sure is one of our favorite composers, Hans Zimmer, who also composed The Lion King score, the score for the first four Pirates of the Caribbean movies, Gladiator, The Last Samurai, The Dark Knight Trilogy, Interstellar, and many, many more. Like with John Williams, it's hard to sort of compile a conclusive list when it comes to somebody as prolific as Zimmer. Oh, there's no way to name his his music without forgetting a few that everyone loves. Right. So this movie does star Leonardo DiCaprio, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Ken Watanabe, Tom Hardy, Ellen Page, Marion Cotillard, Cillian Murphy, Tom Berenger, Dilip Rao, and Michael Caine. So the typical Christopher Nolan crew... <laughs> pretty much pretty much so let's go ahead and talk about the movie so what was your first experience with inception so my first experience watching inception i saw it the week it came out i was really looking forward to it huge fan of christopher nolan and all of his movies i watched it as soon as i could and i knew nothing coming in and 
I was blown away. I just had no idea what to anticipate and exceeded really every expectation I had. Really was very innovative and fresh movie that it's so hard to describe now what my feelings were there, even though, even though obviously the movie hasn't like gotten worse or that much better. It just was unlike any real movie that I've seen before that point. And since it's become my favorite movie ever since then, I remember uh, the day after seeing it, I went back and watched his previous movie, The Dark Knight, because you have to be a big fan of that one to see, is this really Christopher Nolan's best? And it, it truly is. It somehow beat The Dark Knight, this fantastic award-winning movie. I don't know if I quite agree with that, but Inception is definitely pretty high on my list. Sure, sure. I'd have to watch both back to back and sort of reevaluate for myself. But um, I unfortunately did not catch this movie in theaters. I don't know what I was thinking or apparently not thinking at the time. I don't know. I had no reason to not go see it in theaters. Well, the, the marketing really revealed so little about it. There was almost nothing that people knew about this movie going in. And so I remember a quote from a, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio where someone asked him, uh, what's Inception about? And Leo responded, um, it's about two and a half hours. <laughs> well, that's just about right. Yeah, there's so little to know before that it would have been easy one to miss. Yeah, and at that point, I'd only seen his Batman movies, which, of course, at that time were only Batman Begins and The Dark Knight. And while they were great movies, I just, I don't know, I just didn't get around to seeing Inception. But I got it pretty soon after it came out on Blu-ray. And the first time I watched it, I was in my college dorm room, and it was a little 19-inch TV, and it was on Blu-ray. And I watched it the first time, and I liked it. And I decided I watched it like two more times in the next two or three days. So three viewings within a three-day period, for sure. And it was just, it's so absorbing. It's like you catch something new every time you watch. It's one of those movies where your perspective can definitely change every time you watch it because you see it from a different viewpoint or you start to understand some aspect a little bit better. And so watching it those first three times, even on that crappy little 19-inch TV, it's just got so many layers and it was just generally fascinating and had these great visual effects sequences. It was just instantly one of my favorites as well. And this was my first time watching this movie in probably four to five years. I don't know if it's actually been that long, but I don't remember watching it anytime recently for sure. And it's just as fun. And my, my opinion really hasn't worsened at all over time. And it's just as engaging as it was all those years ago when I first saw it. Yeah, that's how it was for me, too. It never never goes down, never really goes up, but it still is so engrossing. Uh, even though it's exploring really deep and really unexplored concepts, you still never doubt the things that are happening on screen. Uh, Chris Corbold, the visual effects supervisor, does such a remarkable job of making sure that everything looks exactly the way it should be, even in these unexplored areas of film. Right. So let's go ahead and dive into the story. So what story aspects of this film do you enjoy? So the story itself, it's a bit complicated and a little hard to explain. Uh, what I love, it's a heist movie. In its essence, it's a heist movie that really turns the genre on its head. That, you know, these thieves aren't really trying to take anything. They're trying to put something in. And it's not even an item. It's completely intangible. It's just a, a thought, an idea. And so when you're presented with that, you have like no idea how they would really accomplish this monumental task. And so they take you into this world so, so carefully. They don't give you too much information. They don't give you too little. They give you just the right pacing. They take you through 
this new world in a way that just opens it up like so many other series have done, like Harry Potter, Star Wars. You love this world that you're now seeing here. There's so much about plot. It's hard to really narrow it down to any particular things that I enjoy about it. Yeah, speaking to its complexity, I think I introduced my grandparents once a few years ago, and that was probably the most complicated viewing experience of any movie I've ever had because they weren't really comprehending it. It, it's, it really does move at a pretty quick pace despite its two and a half hour length. And you really have to be pretty focused and give all your attention in order to understand everything. And so that, that viewing probably ended up being more close to four hours or four and a half hours because it was like, okay, watch this scene pause okay grandma and papa this is what just happened this is what it means and this is what they're accomplishing next and then pause okay now in this layer of the dream this is happening and this is what they're trying to do and it's enjoyable because i enjoy sort of talking people through film and giving them opportunity to see and fully understand the story but in that sense it was also challenging because i was having to understand a film on a different level than just enjoying it as i viewed it you know Oh, yeah. One thing that I always love every single time I've seen it is that for the second half of the movie where they're actually performing Inception, you completely lose yourself in that in that world there. You almost forget that there's an airplane they're even in. You start to think of this, uh, that the van that they're driving around in is the main world, that there's so many layers to it that you get a little, you really get drawn into this world that you're in. And you just want to see more and more of everything that's going on. That's happening simultaneously right there in front of your eyes. Yes, definitely. And, you know, I've talked on this show about time travel movies and other science fiction genres. And I, I've talked about the mechanics of those worlds, those sci-fi concepts. And that's the same thing here. I think what Christopher Nolan does very, very well here is tackle the concepts of dreaming, the mechanics of dreaming. And we have all these cool notions. There's the kick, which, of course, we've all experienced. We've all had that sort of falling feeling that wakes us up in the middle of bed as we're sort of first starting to fall asleep. And there's the idea of the intrusion of the outside, where whether that's a slap on the face or uh, needing to go use the restroom or whatever external stimulus is affecting us, manifesting itself within the dream itself. And I think that's something that is incredibly fascinating in this movie. And it allows for some of the coolest action sequences I've ever seen in a movie. Oh, yes. And those aspects you're talking about how interference from the outside world comes into your dreams. I noticed more and more of that on this most recent viewing. This is my ninth time watching the movie. And one thing I noticed was that uh, when they're in the dream, when they first get in there, Yusuf, it's, it's rainy in there, and uh, Eames tells Yusuf that he's been drinking too much, and that's what's causing the rain. Right before that, when they're the very last moments in the airplane, you see him drinking some alcohol in there. It's like, hey, they actually put that in. So you get little nuances the more and more you watch it. Right. I don't know if I had noticed that until this viewing as well. It definitely got a chuckle from me as uh, I realized that the reason it was raining was because he had had too much to drink and was definitely needed to find a restroom sometime soon. And just a couple other things as far as the mechanics of dreaming goes, the, the idea of multiple layers and going deeper, it's just so cool. And like I said, it's difficult to follow, but on the same page, I don't think that its complexity takes away from its enjoyment. And I don't think you have to fully wrap your head around everything from the get-go in order to enjoy this movie. Because outside of its complexity, it is just a good action film, too. Like I said, there's some really excellent action shots, action scenes. The one that always comes to mind when I think about this movie is the hallway scene. Of course. When the van is rolling and 
what's coolest about that is that's a that's a physical action scene. That is not special effects in the sense that they did that on a computer screen. That's special effects in the sense that they built a hallway and they rotated it and had Joseph Gordon-Levitt run down it. And that, that's just the coolest thing to me. And that's something that Christopher Nolan also does very well is his, his practical sets outside of visual or digital effects, I should say. Yeah, he really makes sure that his every type of scene, even action scenes, really do things that are a bit more groundbreaking, that action scenes are a dime a dozen in movies nowadays, and he really wants to give something that is fresh to the audience. He wants to do something new, and that hallway scene really just takes the cake on that. You'll, <laughs> No one has ever seen something like that before. No, and I can't imagine what it was like to film that, because, I mean... I was just laughing watching the scene and not because it's a funny scene necessarily, but just because it's sort of mind blowing just watching this happen and know that it it sort of really happened and trying to imagine Joseph Gordon-Levitt on set running down this hallway that's spinning on him and having to adjust for gravity. And uh, it's just a a cool scene to sort of, it, it makes me want to go through and watch all the special features again, because I think I've actually done that before for this movie. I really want to go back and watch the special features and just really see everything that went into the making of those kinds of things. The special features, I, I was going to mention that. That's what I was thinking right there, was that on the Blu-ray, those special features that talk about those scenes as well as others, it really shows how real this was, that Nolan and the rest of the team didn't want to do any tricks or anything like that. They wanted to make sure that everything looked as real as it was for both the audience and for the actors in their performance the hallway scene is obviously the best example of that, how they made sure it is completely real, even with the lighting, making sure that there are no external lights, that they made things bright enough in the room itself by having practical lights scattered throughout the scene. Christopher Nolan is such a great filmmaker when it comes to that. And also, of course, mechanics aside, action, uh, visual effects aside, this movie packs a surprising emotional punch, I think. Oh, yes. And it, it's really a testament to how great a storyteller Christopher Nolan is, because even the Batman movies, each of those films has a different focus where he's wanting to draw out a different emotion from you. And so in this one, we, we deal with feelings of guilt and we feel with loss and complex father-son relationships. And it's really attacking you on all fronts as far as making you feel something aside from just watching a cool action flick. I, I love how, you know, this could have easily just been a simple heist movie, but you want to put emotion behind it, as you're saying, that uh, I remember that, and it's interesting that you're talking about emotion because they talk about that in their preparations, that, you know, they believe that emotion is the biggest thing to make sure that this act of Inception is done correctly. And he wants to make sure that the movie is the same. Inception, both the act and the movie, have to be done with with emotion behind it. It has to be something that will really grab the audience. The story with Cobb's children, the relationship between the two the two Fishers, Cobb and his dead wife, there's so many little nuances in there that make this a very complex story that you don't really know exactly how a character would would react and becomes believable when they do do their actions. Right. And of course, all the emotion comes from characters and actors. So let's talk about our favorites as far as characters go. Oh, that's a really tough one that really I just love all of the characters in this movie that all of them are very intriguing. They're engaging. You really understand the necessity for each person involved. Everyone from, of course, Leonardo DiCaprio's Dom Cobb to uh, even Dalip Rayo as Yusuf. They'll get a moment to shine. Um, probably my favorite one outright is Eames, played by Tom Hardy, which first of all, as you said, the names in this are a bit ridiculous. It's a bit hard to remember the names. 
like if you ask any casual audience, it's hard for them to name more than maybe one or two characters in this movie. Yeah, especially like Ariadne. Yeah, but I, lo- I love Eames, how he probably has the least involvement in this. He seems like he doesn't have that grave a need in this, but he looks like he's having a great time throughout it. That he makes uh, quips back and forth with Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character. We see the way that he's able to take charge during scenes when he uh, impersonates Browning or when he needs to defend Fisher. He seems like a very trustworthy guy that Cobb has had a really great uh, great history with in the past. I would love to see more behind these characters, really all of them. But but of course, we, we get the two and a half hours that we get, and I'm glad for that. Yeah, and speaking of Eames specifically, I think, well, he, he brings his typical charm and humor and some very capable action scenes. And I think that just based on Tom Hardy's performance here, you could make a very convincing case as to he could be a great James Bond. Oh, certainly. Um, no, I'm not saying he's my, he's not my particular choice. I'm not saying that. Although I definitely wouldn't mind to see him as a James Bond type character sometime in the future because he obviously plays it very, very well. Sure. But at the same time, he introduces some of the more complex ideas in this film. Um, as you said, it's, it's about introducing the most simple version of an idea to plant that idea in somebody's head. And so he's the one who traces back okay, so how do we get Fisher to dissolve his father's corporation? Well, you trace it back to the relationship between his father. And the simplest idea of that is my father wants me to make something for myself or to do something of my own. And watching him sort of come up with that plan in the moment is really fascinating to me because, I don't know, it's just Tom Hardy, his character Eames is hes a fun character, but he has those moments where he, he really contributes aside from just a quick one-liner or an action scene. Oh, yeah. The entire sequence where they're preparing for this heist, which I always enjoy this. I'm big. I'm very passionate about heist scenes. And the preparation is possibly more important than the actual heist itself. And you see what all the characters are doing and how he is studying and really gain a great understanding for who Fisher is so that he can contribute in the heist itself when things need to change. Yeah, and of course we should talk about Leonardo's Dom Cobb as well. It's a typical, fantastic Leonardo DiCaprio performance. I, I don't think anybody would argue that. Oh, yes. And he brings the the emotional weight and this complexity to the character that we all feel pretty easily, I think. He, he doesn't make it difficult to sympathize with him. He has this deep compassion for others. He has this fear of loss and the guilt of having caused it, the death of his wife or the suicide of his wife. He, he feels guilt for that and for obvious reason, as we've come to find out. But at the same time, he, he loves his wife and his kids deeply. He loves them deeply. And he has this willingness to do pretty much whatever it takes, whatever it is possible in order for them to reunite. And he, he does make a couple of decisions that he maybe should have communicated with others, the relationship with his wife within his dreams. So he doesn't communicate to everybody else as well as he should. But those reveals when we find out, oh, wow, Maul is really pretty malicious here or stuff like that. We were really able to sympathize with him and see why he's making the decisions we do, even though it may not be the correct decision in the moment. I fully agree. One aspect of his character that is probably the most fascinating aspect for me is how he has performed in Inception 04, as we learned throughout the movie, that he has been able to make his wife think that her entire existence is not real. And so he knows that this act is able to happen, but he doesn't want to revisit that past. That's a, a really dark memory for him. But he knows this is the only way to really to return to his, his family that he wants to see so badly. And so 
it's a family tie on both sides that he doesn't want to revisit the tragedy of his wife's death, but he wants to visit his children. And that's really what uh, the emotional pull is for him in doing this job. Speaking of his wife, Maul is malicious. Uh, a, a great performance from Marion Cotillard, though sometimes difficult to understand, probably in your first couple of viewings. I didn't have any problems when watching last night, but she has that maliciousness that is really apparent in the dream. But at the same time, we have these moments when we're seeing specific memories where we're able to see how tender she can be and how loving their relationship was when it was at its best. It, it's just sort of gone south as this idealized version of her has sort of soured when trapped in his mind. Yeah, and it makes a great parallel to how people actually feel after tragedy. There's so much uh, regret there. She feels like a real person, but you can tell that the memory of her, the essence of her has been tainted because of so much time that's gone on without really coming to closure with with what Cobb has done in the past. I, I just love it so much. There feels like there's so much so much nuance in there and that we're only really grasping a piece of what that relationship really has been over time. And I definitely want to take this moment to sort of just quickly go back to the mechanics of dreaming and to talk about how cool Nolan's concepts of projections are, how they are physical manifestation of our subconscious. And so people are able to go in and speak with direct aspects of our subconscious, and that's how they commit their extractions. And so the idea that there's this manifestation in Cobb's mind that takes the form of his wife, obviously it isn't his wife because it's a projection, but it's able to embody all of his guilt and all of his pain and all of his loss and all of his love at the same time. And she's one example, but there are other examples. That just the idea of our subconscious, our deepest fears, desires, loves, hates, all of those things being able to take physical form within the dream world and being physical things that you can communicate with. I think that's that's fascinating. I think that's uh, one of the best things to come out of this movie as far as complex thoughts from Christopher Nolan. Yeah, it feels like a, a nice parallel to um, addiction, PTSD, these different really complex and tragic concepts there, how... For example, he needed Ariadne's help in order to escape from this. They couldn't really make it out of this by himself. There's a lot of concepts like that that are explored very deeply here, You know, if, if someone's willing to look into them further. The last character I had written down, specifically at least, was Ariadne. And uh, I, I always love Ellen Page, whether she's in X-Men or Juno or here. She works as our voice in this film. She is the outsider who has come in and needs to be taught about the mechanics of dreaming and about the mission at hand. And so when she's learning something, we're learning it. So she's our voice in the world as far as that goes. And as she learns, we learn. She's able to communicate our questions and to, as we're learning about this with her, we say, hey, wait a minute, is this moral? Or, hey, wait a minute, you're not doing the safe thing here or you're not doing the smart thing here. And she actually voices those concerns within the context of the movie. And so she's a great character in the sense that she is able to sort of represent the audience and be our connecting point. Oh, yeah. Ellen Page just delivers that role so nicely. I, I fully agree with what you're saying about how she is really the audience's voice. Even though she's not introduced for maybe about 20 minutes into the movie, she still jumps right in, and she fills in a lot of the questions that you may have been having after the first um, initial scene that you see of the extraction job that they do on Saito. Right, and there's a lot of exposition in this movie. Some might argue too much. I don't think so. I think oh, all the exposition all. is fascinating. And a lot of it is delivered to her character. 
yeah, the exposition isn't just, oh, let's tell the audience what they need to know. It's interesting. It delves into characters. It explores this world in intriguing ways, such as the uh, Penrose step scene. You know, there's good exposition and bad, and all of the exposition in this helps to flesh out the world and the characters and becomes interesting even on a ninth viewing. Oh, for sure. And it reveals stuff piece by piece. I mean, that's what exposition does is it tells the audience things. I, I get that. But at the same time, we get a little bit about the shared dream process here. And we get a little bit about Dom's relationship with his wife here. And we get a little bit about the profession of extraction here and, and stuff like that. So we're not just like fed these heaps of information. We're fed bit by bit as we go along. And so we get a peek into Dom's memory here that doesn't resolve until here. And then in between that, something else happens. There's always this forward motion that's provided by the the exposition, but also, as we are about to talk about, by Hans Zimmer's score. There's this forward energy throughout the whole thing. I can't agree with you more. Do you have any characters, any other characters that you would like to talk about? I feel like Saito needs to be mentioned in some way that. You know, he's the one that's the catalyst to everything that happens. He starts the movie off and helps to understand who Cobb is. You think he's almost a villain at first, but then you realize that this character a lot, a lot deeper. He motivates him to take this leap. He's willing to help Cobb. And I like how you see he becomes a little more sympathetic throughout the dream that they go through that he reminds him that he's willing to keep his promise. He's going to make sure that Cobb gets home, but he wants this job to be performed. I think it really shows shows a genuine aspect to Ken Watanabe's character there. He's another one of those characters that maybe on your first or second viewing, you might have problems understanding, but I think that definitely adds to his character. And I think that's something that Christopher Nolan has always been very true to is if somebody has some sort of speech quirk, like for example, Bane in The Dark Knight Rises, there's the voice aspects of that character, the sort of behind the mask speech adds to that character it's a physical trait of him and he wouldn't be the same if he didn't sound that way and i think it's the same way here ken watanabe's character saito would not be saito if he didn't sound like saito sounds in this film same with marianne cotillard and so i i think that that's something that christopher nolan is willing to do that other directors aren't really as willing to do because they're more keen on audience understanding and i wouldn't say that nolan sacrifices audience understanding i think he just challenges the audience to sort of Focus a little bit more, pay a little bit more attention, because if you understand this character and you're, you're paying attention enough to understand this character, then you're going to walk away with a little bit more than somebody who didn't pay attention might. Yeah, you understand how deep and really that this person really does have good qualities to him. And so that after the movie that, you know, we assume he's going to be taking over this business mogul there that, you know, he'll do a good job in running this business and they actually is a genuine sort of upstanding guy. And he introduces one of the two sort of recurring quotes in this movie. Saito's quote is to take a leap of faith unless you want to die an old man. Full of regret. Right. And the other one comes from Maul, of course, or from Dom himself. You're waiting on a train. You don't know where it's going, but it doesn't matter. And the whole concept of questioning reality. And forward momentum that you know that there's a place you need to go to. Exactly. And so... There's just a whole lot going on here. Different characters introduce really cool things. And Saito, I should say, also brings some great humor to this. Eames and Saito are probably, and maybe Yusuf as well, bring some of the comedy to the film here. My favorite Saito line, I think, is, I bought the airline. <laughs> yes. 
it seemed neater. Exactly. And Yusuf has his moments where, you know, like he rolls the van on accident as he's being chased by the dream projections. And he, he looks back at the company of the van. Oh, did it, did you see that? Of course they didn't because they're all asleep. But he has those moments where he's sort of self-proud because he's not really the action guy, but he just pulled off the sick car stunt. I know. I can just imagine the type of stories that these characters tell to each other years down the road about this adventure that they went on. Right. And I do want to mention, of course, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. He has the coolest action scene in this movie. And Joseph Gordon-Levitt's just always pretty solid in whatever movie role he is. His role isn't super substantial here in the sense that he does a lot for the story. He's not as much of a catalyst as other characters are, I should say. But he he's a faithful companion. He does his job well. And he's just a faithful presence in the film that I enjoy watching. I always like watching Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character. Oh, yes. Other than his hallway fights, my favorite moment from him is how... After that, the gravity isn't working there, and so he can't use a normal kick. And so he, his ingenuity here is remarkable that he puts all the characters in the elevator and shoots them off using the dynamite that they had there. And so I would have never thought about that. I would have actually given up. I have no idea what would have done in that situation, but he's very resourceful and made sure to stick with the job like, like everyone there does. Right, and that's, a, that's definitely another one of the cooler action scenes in the film is with Arthur floating around this hotel in anti-gravity and wrapping everybody else in phone cords and pulling them around and setting dynamite charges in the elevator shaft. It's it's a very cool scene. And you're right, Joseph Gordon-Levitt or Arthur, he brings a lot of calm to the situation, but you're also able to sort of see the, the clock turning behind his eyes as he's figuring things out as time is ticking down. And uh, one last character, I do just want to say Cillian Murphy. I like Cillian Murphy. He plays a little bit of a smaller role here, but it's an emotional role here because he sort of leads one of the two strongest emotional relationships in the film between him and his dying or deceased father. And we're able to see that progression of the change between opinion and relationship from the beginning of the film to the end of the film. And especially at the end of the film, right before they exit the dream sequence where he's in the safe, he's with his father. And his father says, no, I'm, I'm disappointed you tried to be me. And he opens the safe and the pinwheel that's from the picture that we've seen the whole movie of him as a little boy with his father, this precious memory that his father held on to and apparently cares about. We're really able to sort of follow him on this emotional path. And it's a great emotional payoff in that scene. Oh, yeah. I think Cillian Murphy is a bit underrated at times. You know, he plays a great villain throughout the Dark Knight trilogy. And so you think, oh, this guy's a villain. But you know, really, he... He's a bit of a confused character in this transition between his father's death and taking over this company. And so you can really buy into everything that he does and that's how his character changes throughout each dream level. That, you know, in the first level, he's in this hostage situation. The second level, uh, he's trying to discover more about what's going on. Now, the third level, he's really practically a member of the team going with them. And he really just sells this, uh, this relationship that he has with each one of the people throughout that mission right so from there how about we talk about the music because i'm sure we both have a lot to say of course okay so i've been pretty vocal in the past about my opinions of Hans zimmer for a long time i sort of just saw him as somebody who sort of copied himself you look at gladiator you look at pirates of the caribbean you look at a lot of his stuff through the probably the first 10 years of the millennium and there's a lot of similarity between a lot of his work at least i thought now, that being said, I, it didn't make me not a fan. It just didn't put him very high on my list. Well, Inception, I think, his score for Inception really sort of 
marked a turning point in Hans Zimmer's career for me, I think. It's a score that sort of marked him transitioning as a composer, becoming a little bit more experimental and willing to make innovations in his recording techniques and in his composition techniques that a lot of other people weren't doing that he wasn't doing at that time. And so like the main Inception theme here is the French song that we hear playing throughout the film, Slow Down. It's this big bomb, bomb that comes from the French song, Slow Down. And from there, he sort of builds more musical themes on top of that. And a lot of that is sort of simple and sort of ostinato based here, but it's always projecting everything forward. There's this forward energy throughout the whole film. In fact, there's very few moments of silence. There's always music playing, almost always music playing. And it's never distracting. It's always pushing everything forward. And it's it's always got this sort of like ticking to it and this concept of time to it. And it's a really dominating presence in the film that works really, really well. And following Inception, I think that Hans Zimmer has made some really bold choices in his compositions and the types of projects he's tackled and the ideas that he's come up with since. And this score really sort of changed my mind as far as my opinion of Hans Zimmer goes. And he's definitely probably one of my top five, if not higher. Oh, certainly. He's one of the greatest. And in this in this score, uh, we saw in The Dark Knight two years earlier that he started to become a little more experimental. He's always been a bit more experimental with different sounds, but he really went experimental on that with sounds of the Joker and things like that. And here he just takes that entire method to the next level that the, the ambiance, the whole music embraces sort of the uncertainty of the dream, that you feel these styles and these textures throughout. Uh, but it's really difficult to pick out particular themes besides a mm, couple of more standout ones. You know, he's using very much electronic sounds mixed with guitar, mixed with orchestra and drums in ways that, frankly, have never been done before in orchestras. Yeah, and you do hear his Batman references here. But I, I would say that a lot of the experimentation that he did with James Newton Howard on the Batman films comes over here and he builds his themes and his ostinatos and stuff like that from that side of things. For those who maybe aren't as well versed in music, an ostinato is a repeating melodic figure. So in time, we can go ahead and talk into the big track on this album. Time is the one that everybody knows. Of course. And it's the same sort of chord progression over and over and over again. That It's the ostinato of it. You're, you're hearing the same thing. And as that ostinato is continuing on, he adds on another layer. And then he adds on another layer. And then he adds on another layer. And so in this composition that's taking place in a dream sequence we see him mimicking dream sequences in the same way that the characters are in this film where you're adding layers and you're going deeper and you're making it more complex as you go. And he really does that very well on pretty much every track here. I was noticing earlier when I was preparing that, you know, you listen to this track and there's this ostinato and you listen to this track and there's this ostinato and it's not boring. Ostinato isn't boring. He uses it very, very well in this film. Like I said, it's very much, projecting forward moving forward forward movement energy and like i said it drives the film forward and the plot forward and it's always very engaging oh yes time is definitely the standout track of the entire soundtrack it's very emotional but it's also very powerful you can feel this forward momentum to it as it uh, builds itself up that you feel the triumph that cobb feels having achieved this goal of both performing the act of inception the right way but also being able to return to his family and the relief he feels that this this went correct. There's just so many emotion here. Feel can visualize this song in a wide range of ways. But that's why it's used as inspiration for a lot of other pieces that have come since. 
Yeah, for my, for specific notes for that track, I did write that it's gorgeously simplistic in its approach and it's masterful. It reminds me a little about Philip Glass in that way. Yeah, and from there, even though it's simple in approach, in execution, it's incredibly weighty. And it, you're right, it does carry this huge emotional weight to it. And we hear it mostly in its entirety at the very end of the film as we're leaving the sort of abyss of deep dreaming uh, in this world that they built together. And then as they're exiting and he's preparing to land in Los Angeles for the first time in however many years and see his kids for the first time. And like I said, time is the piece that everybody knows from this album. And it's just not overrated in any aspects. It's just a beautiful piece of music and one of Hans Zimmer's best. Oh, certainly, certainly. Uh, Another piece that I want to bring up, my actual personal favorite track from the soundtrack is Mombasa. I believe it's track seven. And that it's uh, most heavily featured when Cobb is being chased in Mombasa itself after meeting Eames and how it starts with just the drums pounding. And then, as you were saying with time and other cues, it builds. It's possibly my best example of a track that builds upon itself. That starts with drums. We get violins later on. We get orchestra. We get horns. It just slowly adds the instruments necessary to add weight to the scene and that it's not just used there that we hear it uh, later on when Yusuf begins driving around in his level of the dream. It comes in there. Uh, and then another appearance we hear of it very lightly, but a very creative method of using it is for the Mr. Charles scene. As that scene is starting up, throughout about the first half of it in Arthur's level, the second level of the dream, we get to hear a very light dum bum 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 very lightly to sort of reference back to those other moments that were very chaotic and stressful and you could tell a lot was at stake during those moments once again this had a lot behind it but it's a bit more peaceful but there's still a lot of danger there right it's it's a track of great intensity and it's definitely one of the the heavier action cues on the album oh yeah when i go running that's when i talk picks of a track to be listening to while going on a jog it's sort of like a more amped up version of Molossus from the Batman Begins soundtrack. Sure. They're different in sound, but similar in approach as far as energy and forward momentum. And the other track that I had written down, I could probably talk about all of these tracks, but the other one I had mentioned was Dream is Collapsing, which we hear at the very beginning as they're sort of going through this test with Saito. And they're, it's the first time we see them within a dream, within a dream. And that's the first time we hear the quote unquote inception theme, which is the big bomb, 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 bomb. And the introduction of the French song is a sort of countdown timer. And for, for the record, I keep saying the French song because I don't want to butcher the actual French. Um, <laughs> I believe it's non regretterion, but I'm not, I'm not certain. I know a French friend who has brought up a couple of times, but yeah, it is a tough pronunciation. Yes, and I do have past experience singing in French, but I just didn't want to butcher it myself. But I think your pronunciation was pretty darn close, so awesome. But yeah, Dream is Collapsing is sort of our first introduction into this dream world. And we hear right off the bat how chaotic it can be, how dangerous it can be, and it sort of provides the framework for what we hear sound-wise for the rest of the film. It's hard to really put into words my feelings about that track, that... Dream is collapsing really, I feel like it raised the stakes that before that point, you don't really hear anything that's that impactful and powerful. That's, that's, it's a pretty loud track for one, that the whole thing is filled with power, as I was saying, and how Hans Zimmer uses the orchestra to just show that 
show the stakes that are here and how everything is collapsing. And it just feels like that. Like if the world were coming down on you, that he delivers that. That's exactly what this sounds like, that the entire world, this dream is coming down on him. And I give full props to Hans Zimmer for pulling that off. Right. And probably the last thing I have to say about the music is that Zimmer and Nolan is just one of those inspired pairings in film, I think, just as inspired as Williams and Spielberg. Oh, yes. Um, because they understand each other. They understand what each is trying to accomplish, and they're they're willing to push boundaries. And we see the pairing together first with Batman Begins. And, of course, James Newton Howard is in the mix there, too. As Nolan's career progresses, we sort of see him and Zimmer working more closely together, most recently with Interstellar. And Interstellar just has this huge scope to it. And I think we can definitely trace those huge sounds back to smaller stuff like this. I wouldn't say Inception is small by any stretch of the imagination, but when compared to the entirety of the solar system and beyond, it is a little bit smaller. And we're able to sort of see where Zimmer is going in Interstellar with these sounds, these concepts, this sound design, and really appreciate his growth and Nolan's growth alongside him as they're sort of feeling out these new ideas and really pushing the boundaries of what's possible. Yeah, it's really beautiful when we have a great pairing between a composer and a director that they can come from really different worlds, but Zimmer and Nolan really see each other uh, similar to Giacchino and Abrams, Williams and Spielberg, of course, and how I often wonder what it would have been like if Zimmer and Nolan had worked with each other on Prestige. I love that movie so much, but it would have been really interesting to see what Zimmer's take would have been on the music for this movie filled with uh, secrets and intrigue and magicians and different time frames. Right. And like I said, Hans Zimmer, I think, has been on the whole a better composer since Inception and certainly since the Batman movies as well. But he's really at his best when he's paired with Christopher Nolan because they're able to try new things together and work together to tell a story. And that's what he does so well here with Inception, with Interstellar, with the Batman movies, whatever it is. They're very good at working together to tell a story. And it's just a really special pairing, like we've said. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Before we move off the music, there's another track that I have to mention. Uh, and that is Don't Think About Elephants, which is one of the bonus tracks if you purchased it from iTunes, I believe, or or something like that. So, you know, I've had it since 2010, so it's hard to remember exactly how it came. But the whole second half of the scene on the ice mountain, you've heard the track, right? Actually, I don't know if I have. This sort of caught me off guard, so I'm excited to hear about it. Well, be sure to look it up. The whole thing's just complete action-packed. It sort of takes that aspect of dream is collapsing or dream within a dream of the orchestra just bubbling and the whole thing moving together to a whole new level. I I always feel bad that's not on the original CD and how it just uses the instrument so brilliantly. I think it's about five or seven minutes long. It's a fairly lengthy track, and I enjoy it every time I hear it. It really propels you forward. It's one of those fantastic Zimmer action cues. Whenever I think of the music of this movie, I think of Mombasa, I think of time, and they think about Don't Think About Elephants. The title is misleading. It has nothing to do with the scene of Don't Think About Elephants. But, oh well, I'm sure that the title doesn't diminish from the track itself. Toward the end of the track, it's very pulsating, similar to a lot of the sounds that we hear throughout the Batman trilogy. Just these pounding notes just coming at you repeatedly, sort of like how the entire team is being shot at and being fought with on different levels. Eam, Yusuf, Saito, Arthur, all of them are being attacked in different ways. 
and the orchestra is doing that similarly. Awesome. So let's go ahead and move on to the sort of themes and relevance section. So there's obviously a lot of depth to this movie. So what, what would you say is one of the takeaways? Uh, so one thing is I love the psychology of it. That's uh, my family were really big into psychology and how the brain works. And of course, that's everything that this movie is. Uh, one big example that I have of that is how, while they're preparing for Inception, that Cobb mentions that uh, positive emotion trumps negative emotion every time. And I love that quote, how he, how he realizes that. He has to work in the brain, and so he makes sure to implement this idea. And there's lots of different ideas of that, being able to um, manipulate the brain, being able to understand how those inner workings are even beyond dreams, as I was saying, like just how people generally think and how that is something that people should should think about. That not necessarily for like manipulation or trickery, but simply to have fair communication and fair interaction with people around them. Yeah, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Um, the idea that treating each other better and finding the positive relationships in our lives and emphasizing those and making preference to those and mending those relationships that maybe aren't as positive. It's a really important thing and it's going to lead to better lives in the long run. And it sort of shows a testament to Dom Cobb because he's had these negative relationships. He has a current negative relationship with his wife because of the projection he has of her in his mind. And so in the the act of inception, he realizes the importance of feeding off positive emotion rather than negative so that it doesn't ruin Fisher. Uh, yes. Another theme that I was just thinking about here uh, is about teamwork and friendship, how they're in this mission and you realize very quickly that this is actually a very dangerous mission. They have a lot at stake than simply not performing the mission right and how every single member of this team really works together, makes sure that this works out for them, that there's no piece that puzzle that that isn't necessary. Arthur needs to do his job. Eames needs to do his job. And they all do it perfectly. If anyone bailed out, it all would have crumbled, but they all really rely on each other and they do it together. They all trust each other. I feel like that's just, those are the type of friends you need. There's times in your life that are tough. There's times when things really need to be done the right way and they all come through. It's really remarkable. Yeah, you're right. Every person does have a a part to play in this film and they even go so far as having specific roles for themselves you have the the architect who's ariadne whose job it is to create the world you have the forger who is eames who has to imitate people and find the exact details so there are things that are made real there are the extractors themselves who do this talking to the subconscious and the the physical extraction or in this case inception of planting the idea and so you're right. Everybody has a role to play. Everybody relies on each other to fulfill their role. So at the very beginning, you have the character who misses an important detail in regards to the material the carpet is made of, and it reveals to Saito that he's dreaming. Or you have uh, later in the film when it was Joseph Gordon-Levitt's job, sorry, I, I should call him by his character, Arthur's job, to do the research to find out any background on Fisher and any important details they should know when going into his mind, into his dream. Yeah, even though for a second, like, Dom gets, you know, a bit a bit mad at Arthur for not doing his research properly about Fisher being prepared for this, that, you know, they still work at a great team right after that with the uh, fake interrogation scene. You know, they still rely on each other. They're still really good friends. He's willing to forgive him. Right, because the focus is the job at hand and getting it done correctly. And so, yes, there's moments when things go south, but they're always looking forward and 
finding the next thing to do to make their job a success. Definitely, definitely. So the two sort of main points I had written down, the first is the idea of dreams versus reality and the idea of living our lives rather than getting lost in the possibilities. That's not forgetting or neglecting to dream or to have aspirations. It's just not letting it be our sole focus in life. To reference an episode from a couple weeks ago, we talked about Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. And of course, in that film, in that book, you have the Mirror of Erised. And Dumbledore has the famous quote, it does not do well to dwell on dreams and forget to live. And that sort of really applies well here because you have Dom and Maul who spent decades in this dream world and they were there for so long that Maul sort of forget or they both sort of forget the tide of reality. They forget which one is real and which one isn't real. And that's what sort of leads to this whole idea of inception in the first place. And Dom planning this idea in his wife's mind within the dream world that her world isn't real, that that world isn't real, and that they have to kill themselves in order to escape back to reality. And of course, that persists whenever they get to the real world. So there's that type of danger in this fictional world. But outside of that, you've just got the idea of being careful to focus on real life and what you can accomplish now and in the near future, rather than putting all of your focus in the distant future or in distant hopes and dreams and forgetting to focus on now and live in the moment. Yeah, when you bring that up, it reminds me of the scene uh, when they first are introduced to Yusuf, how he takes them down to his basement, how there are people there who are using his sedative in order to stay in this dream world for weeks on end, and that seeing the things that uh, Cobb showed Ariadne and through the other dream sequences, you can almost be a little uh, attracted to the idea of just staying in a dream and that Cobb himself even goes down into that for a little while. It's a very brief moment, but you see that he he himself goes with them to try out what Yusuf has done. I'm always curious about what happened in there. You know, I, I wonder if that experience helped him to see that there's more to life than just these dreams and these fake worlds, which motivates him a bit more to make sure that this mission goes correctly so he can come back to his real family. Right. And in this discussion, of course, we have to at least mention the controversial, I should say, ending where as Dom arrives home, he spins his top, his totem to see if he's dreaming or if it's reality because he's been struggling with that. He doesn't know what's real and what's not because he spent so much time in the dream world. And so after he spins his top, he catches a glimpse of his children. They call for him. And instead of seeing whether the top falls or continues to spin, indicating that it's still, he's still in a dream, he goes out and he visits his kids for the first time. And so the controversy therein lies on the panning out, the focusing on the top, and whether it really was a dream or whether it really was reality. And so I was curious, what's your take on that ending? So, of course, that's always the big question, which... It almost annoys me a little bit that that's always the big question is like, this is such a grand movie and your focus is on the last three seconds of it. But obviously it is a big point and Nolan does want that to be discussed somewhat that essentially I have two theories about it. One is that, you know, everything of the airplane, that ending scene, most of the movie that you see at the beginning is all real stuff. It's completely real. That's basically my belief about it given that there is not a sequel. If there's a sequel, which I am like 98% sure there will never be, then I would say that is a dream, but that the entire thing is Maul's dream, that she never died, and that when she died, she actually came out of it, 
and was able to get this. I, I have a long theory about this, but basically I would say that Maul is still alive and it's her dream if there's a sequel. But at this point, it's very much a real thing. And Nolan and Michael Caine and others have spoken out about that multiple times. Right. That's really a fascinating theory that I might be interested in hearing sometime. Um, for me... Well, Nolan himself has come out and said, you know, the important focus of that ending isn't that the top is about to or not about to topple. It's that Dom doesn't care. It's oh, that, yes, I love his that attention isn't on questioning his reality. His attention is on these are my kids and I'm with them again. And that's what I focus on. You're right. I really don't think that the ending should be the focus as far as the top itself or the totem itself. I really do think that it's about redemption it's about putting aside his guilt realizing that life happens he has to move on and at this moment in time he's back home with his family and that's what's most important to him in that moment and that's why he's not paying attention to the top at the end and whether it's a dream or not personally i think it's not i think it's real life but whether it is or not that's not the important part at the end of the film smarter people on the internet than me have said that the real totem would be his wedding ring because as we learn throughout the film, the top totem was not his totem to begin with. It was Maul's and we're told that we can't touch each other's totems. We can't see each other's totems because they're very individualistic in their concepts. So the internet people who are smarter than me have said that the totem here is his totem is actually his wedding ring. And so when he's wearing his wedding ring, he's in his dream. And when he's not wearing it, he's not in his dream. And so at the end, He's apparently not wearing his wedding ring, and so therefore he is not dreaming. Now, I haven't watched the movie with that great scrutiny myself, so I can't attest to whether or not that is a correct theory, but that is what other people on the internet I have seen say, and it definitely is an interesting perspective, I think. Sure, sure. I, I knew that he doesn't ever wear the wedding ring when he is in the real world, but I never knew if that was his totem. I never really thought about it that particular way. I, I thought totem works differently than that, that you would keep it in the real world in order to prove that you are actually in the real world. Right. And like I said, that's that's not a, a concept that comes from me. But uh, maybe next time I watch it, I'll, I'll see if I can watch and see, hmm, is he wearing his ring here or isn't he? And see if I can sort of figure out for myself. Well, the one last sort of theme and takeaway I have from this film was the idea of living our own lives and on the flip side, letting others live theirs. And we see this most prominently between the fishers living a fulfilling life and living a life for you and for your wants and your desires is more important than following in the footsteps of others. Even if that's family, if it's your father, if it's your mother, if it's a close uncle or cousin, I don't know. The most important part of your life is following your path and not trying to follow this path that others have set in front of you. And at the same time, acknowledging that others have their own dreams and aspirations and not forcing our desires or our goals and aspirations on them. And we see that growth over the film with Fisher. We see, okay, I'm about to take control of my father's company. You see his relationship with Uncle Peter. But we, we see that relationship sort of serve as a building point for the eventual reconciliation between the Fishers. And him realizing, or at least thinking he's realizing his father's real true goals for him, which are to be his own person and not to try to be his father. Yeah, I'm a little curious what happened to Browning after this. How was 
uh, Fisher Jr.'s relationship with Browning following this whole experienced on the plane right and ariadne actually references that at one point in the film she says and and ruin the one good relationship he does have and eames responds with no we're repairing the relationship with his father and exposing peter for who he truly is or something to that effect yeah yeah they do make that mention in there oh when you're mentioning that about how uh you know being able to live our lives and allowing other people to do the same uh, i was mainly thinking of ariadne there how cobb is almost a little reluctant to bring her on fully that he just wants her to design and that he brings that up, that this can be a uh, sort of alluring world. This can be a big distraction. He doesn't want her to be uh, too involved in it, but over time she makes her own decisions in, in entering into this world of uh, dream sharing together and does a fantastic job with that. Definitely. Any other sort of relevance or themes or takeaways from this film? I'm sure there's, there are, but none, none that I feel to really discuss too fully. Okay, what about final thoughts? Final thoughts. Uh, well, as I said, this is uh, this is my favorite movie, and it's really a bit um, of a changing movie in that way. That you know, we sleep typically for about a third of our lives. You know, you get hopefully around seven to eight hours of sleep each night, and that that's about a third of your lives. And that we normally don't even think about it. it's just oh, go to bed, wake up, but that there's a lot of deep things that happen there your mind is really working a lot and that that is something to think about a lot what happened to those dreams do those dreams really change who we are when we wake up when we are in real life and also just you you see dreams in such a different light the whole concept of how we never know where we were before in a dream we don't know how we entered a room being able to mess with the reality that things can be a little bit different there that things always seem entirely real and how dreams really are something that they're one of the most common things that we do. We probably do more, you know, dreaming than we do actually like eating or something like that in real life. But we don't really understand them fully. And obviously the movie really just encapsulates everything so well. I think about how Nolan's filmography, I like to think how each of his movies is basically the exploration of a single word. You know, Memento explores memory. Uh, Batman Begins explores fear. Dark Knight explores chaos. Prestige explores secrets. Interstellar explores space and time. That you feel like you really understand this concept of dreams. Uh, like you took a long college course about it just by watching this single movie. That the performances are all perfect. The script really is concise. He worked on this script for over a decade, I think really making sure that's fleshed out exactly how he wants it. You know, I, I said at the beginning of the show, I work in film production, and a good script is really worth everything. He made a script that I, I love. I've actually read the script before. It's not too much different, but it's cool to read all the thought and planning that went into making sure that this movie really worked. There's so many ways this movie could have gone badly. I just, watching it most recently, I just think how, Maybe a less skilled director or production design team wouldn't have taken the care to make sure that every nuance really works. That you see how every character is really distinct. You see how all the environments are unique and grandiose. The visual effects look so perfect. And, of course, the music fits just brilliantly. Hans Zimmer, even if this is not my favorite soundtrack, I feel like it's the one that he took the most care on. He worked on it so much to make sure that 
he put as much work into this as Chris had done. This is really Christopher Nolan's baby. It's his golden movie that he worked so long on, and he's really giving a gift to the audience and to Hans Zimmer to make sure that Zimmer is able to do justice to this film. Obviously, I could say a lot about this movie, but I enjoy it so much, and it really makes me feel that I feel the power of cinema, that how much a movie really can accomplish and give to an audience in just a short two and a half hours there. I'm just really glad that, in fact, possibly the greatest, one of the greatest compliments I can give to something is to say that is inceptious. I say that occasionally <laughs> with, with different things that, ooh, this book was really complicated and confusing and engaging. It was inception. <laughs> That's great. I don't know if I use it enough nowadays. So for me, this is probably my favorite non-Batman Nolan film. I don't think I can place it above The Dark Knight just because The Dark Knight is such an incredibly well-made film as well. But this is like same tier, I would say, as The Dark Knight with Heath Ledger's performance, of course, and uh, just the, all the complexities and noir of that film. So Nolan is just so good at creating a well-woven, masterful, emotionally affecting story. And that's exactly what we get here. And paired with some of Zimmer's best work in recent years, it just makes an incredible movie. And I would say as far as Nolan's filmography goes, this is actually probably the most accessible as any of his films are just because admittedly, I have not seen the prestige or what's the other one. I haven't seen insomnia insomnia or the following. Yeah, I don't think I've seen insomnia or prestige or the following, I guess I didn't have that mentioned in the filmography. As far as the one that I have seen, I think this is the most accessible just because it's it's complex, but it's not overly complex in the sense that it's difficult to watch. It's not a superhero film. It's not a space film. It's just good sci-fi action, but not extreme sci-fi action. And in that sense, it's it's very engaging and it's just an entertaining movie to watch. Even if you don't watch for all the depth, you can watch it and just enjoy it as a cool movie. Yeah, very much so. I feel like such movies as like The Prestige or Interstellar, those ones may be, you know, it feels like you have to watch the entire thing, but there's many sequences in this that, you know, sometimes I'll put in Inception and just watch the ending heist or the beginning dream collapsing scene or the Penrose steps, the Mombasa chase. There's all these little moments that are easy to go into and enjoy it. If for anyone of any age, there's some of his material that might seem a little uh, mature insomnia or uh, parts of prestige or the dark night. But, you know, this one, I feel like even a small child can enjoy, not, not too small, but you know, young people can enjoy it and old people can enjoy it. And it's just an all around great movie to enjoy. Definitely. And uh, real quick, before we close, I do want to mention a social media comment. We got retro rewind podcast mentioned on Instagram. They said, a well-paced movie and you never know what's coming next and is very rewatchable as you continually look for clues as to whether or not Dom is dreaming or awake at the end. The top doesn't fall. Inconceivable. So th they clearly enjoy this movie as well. They clearly have some questions about the ending. Thank you, Retro Rewind Podcast, for reaching out. And any of you can reach out. Remember, we are at Cinescope Pod on Twitter. I announce every Sunday what movie we're going to be talking about that week. I also mentioned it on Instagram and Facebook this week. So if you find us on those using the show notes, you can do that as well. And I'd be happy to read other people's thoughts on the show as we continue. And with that, that is the end of the official ninth episode of Cinescope. Thank you for joining me, Benson. Well, thank you for having me. It was, it was very fun. I enjoyed talking with you.
Me too. Remember, contact for the podcast is on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast or at CinescopePod on Twitter. Please go to iTunes. At least give us a rating, whether that's four or five stars. That'd be awesome. A review would be even better, but I understand that we all have time constraints and other responsibilities. You can also email any other specific feedback to thecinescopepodcast at gmail.com. And if you're interested in co-hosting like Benson just did or like Mikey did last week or anybody else who's been on the show has, you can contact me on email, also at that email address or on Facebook or Twitter or wherever you feel most appropriate. If you have a movie that you love that you think you can talk about for a long time, not even for a long time, for just a while, email me because I'd love to have you on the show. Now, Benson, where can people find you online? So the best place to find me online is on Twitter at GoSoundtracks. I try to tweet daily my thoughts on uh, soundtracks, but also just general movie musings or whatever I feel to put out there. Uh, I try to keep fresh content up as much as possible and really help share the rich world that soundtracks really are. It's also go soundtracks for Facebook and Instagram. Those are the best places there, too. Yeah, that's the best places there. Hopefully there'll be more places in the future. Great. And following him on Twitter, you can find him, you can listen to his thoughts, and you can also find other people in the soundtrack community that we all talk with. And we have regular discussions, actually, on Twitter about film soundtracks and film soundtrack news. And it's it's a really fun community to be a part of if you're interested in that kind of material. The best place to find me on Twitter is uh, at Chadadada, that is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A. Or you can also find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash chad.hopkins. And all these show notes, all the contact information can be found at thecinescopepodcast.com. And that is all for this week. Thank you again, Benson. It's been awesome having you on the show. I really enjoyed talking about this movie with you. Well, thank you. And thank you everyone else for listening to episode nine. I'm Chad Hopkins. This was Cinescope. And we'll be back next week with episode 10. Have fun and celebrate movies. (laughs) 